Welcome to FYI, ARK's weekly podcast on innovation and technology investing. As we wrap up 2019, I'd like to thank everyone who's followed ARK over the years and subscribed to our podcast. We've had some truly amazing guests this year, ranging from world-class geneticists to founder CEOs. In this final episode of 2019, we put together a greatest hits compilation of our five favorite recordings of the year. Our most popular episode by far is our interview with Tesla CEO, Elon Musk. In episode 11, Elon talks about how his engineering background drives his decision-making and why he's confident Tesla will be able to achieve full autonomy. So, I mean, this is an amazing technological feat. What gives you the confidence that this is a solvable problem? And then why should Tesla be the one to solve this? Well, first of all, I think it's helpful to clarify with people. People think sometimes that I'm like a business person or finance person or something like that. I'm an engineer. I do engineering, always have. So I mean, I wrote software for like 15 years, 20 years, and I understand technology and software at quite a fundamental level. I know what we need to solve to make full self-driving feature complete. I think we've got an extremely good technical team. I, I, I think we really have the, the, the best people. It's an honor to work with them. I'm certain that we will get this done this year. So can I ask you about autopilot? So to what degree is consumer use of autopilot important in terms of furthering along the process? Because it seems like you know not every consumer is going to use it. It might vary person to person. Should you sort of incentivize people to use it, maybe auto-initiate? Is that even possible? Well, here, I think we're talking about quality of the data. Is that what you're talking about? The data that you're getting, because you can monitor all the data, but the quality with autopilot is superior, I would imagine. The advantage that we have that I think is very difficult to overcome is that we have just a vast amount of data on interventions. So effectively, the customers are training the system on how to drive. And there are millions of corner cases. They're so obscure and weird, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, there's, there's different road markings, different rules in different countries, different expectations. You've got rain, snow, sleet, hail, you know, hurricanes, floods, fires, smoke, dust. <laughs> it's insane. I know. But we've got cars in almost all, really in all those environments. And so we, every time somebody intervenes, takes over from autopilot, it saves that information on and uploads it to our system. We, we don't know which car it was or how, what happened. You know, there's no individual attribution for the car. We just know that that intervention took place. And then we see what is required to fix that intervention. And we're really starting to get quite good at not even requiring human labeling. Basically, the, the person, say, drives the intersection. We know then and is thereby training autopilot what to do. Right. Right. Do you think one of the questions we debate a lot when we look at what uh, way happenings at, what is happening at Waymo and cruise automation is that it seems as though the artificial intelligence or deep learning or deep reinforcement learning that you're using, you know, is probabilistic. They seem to be more deterministic in their approach because we're just looking at what's going wrong there. Yes. And that's what that suggests. Does, does that what you yeah, essentially, an heuristics approach to this uh, will result in a local maximum of capability, so not a global maximum. I think you really have to apply a sophisticated neural net to achieve a global maximum. And this is why the reliance on LIDAR is unwise. It, it gets you to a certain point, but no further. And so basically, a series of if-then-else statements in LIDAR is not going to solve it. Forget it. You're just game over. You have to solve v- vision, perception, 
essentially understanding and with vision, and then it's solved. You don't need anything else. No other sensors at all. I mean, we drive cars with basically two cameras that aren't very good and on a gimbal that doesn't move very fast. <laughs> and a professional driver will almost ne- have, almost never have an accent. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of the time we get a lot of pushback in this idea of data and sort of what data is more important than others. I guess maybe highlight for us, like a, I mean, Tesla has more real, real world miles than anyone else by far. I think we must have more than everyone else. Uh, maybe a hundred times more than times everyone more. else. Yeah. You combined. said 5%, right. I think on, you, you said they have altogether 5% of. It's probably closer yeah. to 1%. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. So there must be sort of events that are specific to Tesla in there that no one else has. I guess, could you sort of talk about some of that uniqueness? I think it's just really the the, the long tail of weird events, the million weird situations, you know, all sorts of weather conditions, all kinds of road conditions, situations where the road rules aren't even followed. Like they're not not always followed. Like, you know, say somebody working on the road might make a mistake and then suddenly you've you've got a situation where there are no, no road cones. Uh, or there's a big hole in the road or something really nutty or completely strange object that's on the road that's not recognized. So it's really the the, the reason Tesla I think is making rapid progress is because we have vastly more data and this is increasing exponentially with, as our fleet is increasing exponentially, our data is increasing exponentially. Then I think we've got, like I said, the best technical team. And although I brought it up before, people don't seem to really be uh, taking note of the fact that the Tesla autopilot AI computer is about to roll into production. You know, anyone who's ordered full self-driving will will get that replay. Will get that for free. It's really, you know, I've said it has like maybe it's like a order of magnitude improvement over the Nvidia system that we have, but it's really more like over two thousand percent. Yeah, our analyst on AI deep learning spent nine years at Nvidia and concluded that you were at least three years, just looking initially at the specs, at least three years ahead of anybody else out there, any other auto manufacturer. Yeah, and we, we started the chip program about three years ago because it, it just seems as though we, we would want to advance making things. If you want to have a complex neural network, you need a combination of software and hardware. Um, and your software needs to be that much better in order to compensate for hardware if the hardware is weaker. You know, if you look sort of like, say, how video games and how they've progressed, it's a combination of software and, and hardware. No amount of clever software could produce a video game on old hardware that you have today. It just doesn't matter, you know. So same thing with neural nets. So right now we can process on the order of, you know, 100 frames a second. And we really need to do a lot of work in terms of cropping the frames and sort of bending the pixels and uh, n- not going to full resolution on all cameras and that kind of thing with the current hardware we're at full frames full resolution with the with the tesla hardware all cameras at full resolution full frames that's crazy it still hasn't tapped out yeah so is the amount of compute processing power that you need for full autonomy fixed or would you have to upgrade this every two years how do you think about that well i mean i do think that we could we can achieve in in principle achieve full autonomy with the nvidia hardware but it's a much harder software problem. And like I so said, yeah, like you sort of really have to try to budget your compute and do all sorts of tricks to manage how you use your compute. So it's a harder software problem. With um, hardware that's you know two thousand percent better, you just you don't have to do that that constant budgeting. And so the software software problem is much easier. So like I think with the current hardware and a lot of effort, we could we could get to full self driving with maybe 
maybe being like 50 to 100% safer than a person. But with hardware three, I think it's probably like a thousand percent safer than wow. a person. Are you presenting this to the regulators? Do they understand this? Do they want to understand this? I think they'll they understand data. So if we show yeah. you know billions of miles w- with a given safety level, then they will they sort of appreciate that. I mean, simply saying like, hey, we've got this really fast computer and everything's going to work. It's like, well, you know, that's just a statement. Like, but if you've got hard data, billions of miles, and you can show the accident rate and the intervention rate, and that essentially it's unsafe. If you don't have autopilot on, right, which I think really it's unequivocal at this point, no matter how you slice slice the data, it is unequivocal at this point that it's safer to have autopilot on. The the data comment you just made, we were uh, very interested that the regulators, after they examined the first fatality, I think it was the the data the data around the first fatality that. They just swung in your favor. I, I think it was shocking, and I'm surprised more people haven't uh, really taken note of that. Yeah, it, there is a, a phenomenon that we that we noticed that would that would happen. Essentially, it's like if you yeah, if people just get get overconfident with the system, even though we repeatedly warn them, you must pay attention to the road. Like literally, every time you use autopilot, it says you must pay attention to the road. You must keep your hands on the wheel. Every single time you use it, it says this. And if you take your hands off the wheel for too long, it will start beeping at you and then slow down and that kind of thing. So anyway, so it's just, but really at this point, there's this just, just flat out no question that it's safer. This, you know, like I would recommend it to, to anyone. Um, it's just getting better. So, yeah. So have you noticed a change in the regulatory environment? Are you feeling sort of more confident than previously? Or is this sort of, you know, it's still such an open question that, I mean, Tesla's in a really unique position because you have the data to show them. So it almost seems like, you know, you could be having sort of more advanced conversations about sort of proving that safety level. I guess, what are your what are your thoughts? Right now, we're, we're with a few exceptions, we are not being held back by regulators. Is that a U.S. comment or is it global? I mean, it's, th- there are a, a few jurisdictions in the world that are m- more conservative. Right now, it's, it's I would not uh, say that we're held back by regulators. In minor ways, like for example, like we expect to, I think, get the latest autopilot approval, Navigator Autopilot, I think, is going to get approved in Europe next week or something like that. But this is, these are tiny delays yeah. in the, in the yeah. grand scheme of things. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, that's great. And so as you think about sort of this development of autonomous driving and, and the rollout strategy, you know, Tesla's not taking this other approach that, say, Waymo and, and others are doing, going city by city. You're going to do a wider rollout. There's still sort of, I don't know if you want to call it geofencing, but there's, you know, it, it's you start with highways and then you go sort of off highway. And then are you going to go country by country or, or sort of how are you thinking of this evolving? In terms of sort of the full steps to, I guess, to get to full autonomy, you know, are you then tackling intersections? Or are you sort of adding feature, 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 and then country by country? Yeah, we, we start off with with highway because that tends to be the what actually matters the most. If like you, if particularly if you're stu- stuck in traffic and stop and go traffic, that's very painful, and it has the, the most benefit to have autonomy on freeways, which are usually con- congested in almost every city in the world. So, in fact, myself and others doing is that. Even if there's a shorter way home, you still take the highway because you can use autopilot. I stopped using Waze, for example, just like, you know, take the highway because then I have autopilot on. You know, going through a bunch of windy streets versus, which is kind of like a lot of mental overhead as opposed to just sitting on the highway and cruising along is is, is better. So we're generally gone with, uh, okay, what's going to add the most value to people? Also, you know, highway accidents tend to be higher velocity and so more potentially more dangerous. Like fatality is very proportionate to speed. Below a certain speed, it's 
very difficult to hurt yourself or die, in, in, in particularly in a Tesla. Above a certain speed, it's, it's more dangerous. So it's, it's like, okay, where, where can it be most helpful from a convenience and a safety standpoint? So it's very focused on highways for that reason. Then intersections are the next thing. And some of them, they have a lot of variance in intersections. So that's what you know we're working on right now. And you know it's, it's working at a development level no problem recognizing stop signs and, and traffic lights, but you do get ambiguity in some complex intersections with traffic lights, like which one's the, light, the, the right light to focus on. Even if you're a person, it's not always clear. Yeah. So that, that's the, what we're working on there. So we'll try to make that work in the US and then we'll extend that functionality elsewhere. So it, in like highways in Europe are different, particularly when you deal with the corner cases. So we're kind of making it work in like Norway is a priority for us because we've got a lot of customers there. And I think we're close to having that ready. Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland. I guess one general question. What do you think of letting other automakers build on Tesla's platform? <laughs> I mean, generally we found it's like quite it's not it's not easy to work with traditional automakers. It's not like first of all, they're not exactly banging down our door to work with us. Nobody took you up on your patents. Your I, open no, patents. I think I think they have actually. Oh, you really? Yeah, yeah okay. That, that's on, interesting. On the patents they have. That's very different from say creating an integrated system. Sure. Like, like oh, so yeah. You know, if, if there was an automaker out there that wanted to implement the same hardware system as as Tesla and, and use our software, I think we'd be very open to it. But we're not going to change it. What tends to happen is they want to work with us, but then they'll say, oh, but we want you to change the following like six things. Like, no, because it's going <laughs> to slow us down massively. Yeah. And and so we you know it's like, if you want to use exactly our thing, that's fine. Yeah. But then they don't want to use exactly our thing. Right. We're open to other automakers using a supercharged network. We're open to them to using, using our autopilot system. They just need to make it work without a ton of overhead on Tesla engineering. For decades, cancer was something that was treated rather than cured. Thanks to recent breakthroughs in immunotherapy, we now have the tools to cure certain cancers. In episode 21, author Charles Graber unpacks the history of immunotherapy, why it's remained on the fringes for so long, and why cancer may soon become a manageable disease. How should people think about why it's now appropriate to think about a cure for cancer when for the last couple of decades, we've been just kind of trying to address the symptoms? That's a great question. And I've thought long and hard about using that word. I uh, spoke to a lot of people, obviously, in the course of this this book. It was not my specialty. I didn't, you know, I had to learn, like anybody else, what I was talking about. And I asked oncologists, researchers, uh, you know, can we say cure? Shall we use the word? And they said, absolutely. We have cured cancer in a subset of patients, but we have cured cancer. And we now believe strongly that we know where the cure lies, what, what room it lies in. So that's, and the, you know, not to give the whole ending away, but it's pretty obvious right, right from the beginning. It's sort of like the butler did it. It turns out that the immune system, which has been standing there the whole time, sort of underestimated and misunderstood um, is responsible for all sorts of things that have to do with our relationship with cancer, how we get cancer, as well as other diseases. You know, we can talk about multiple sclerosis and things. So it turns out the Im- immune system is, is central. And for decades, uh, centuries, in fact, it was scientific dogma that the immune system could not recognize cancer, that it was, that's not what it was designed to do. Cancer is us. It's too similar to us for an immune response. Otherwise, you'd have autoimmunity, which would be much worse, much more dangerous. And that turns out to be dead wrong. And now that we know that's wrong, now we know where the answer lies because cancer is a mutating 
problem, right? It's us mutated and it continues to mutate. And if you don't wipe it out, it continues to change and dance and it's creative. Drugs are not creative. Nothing that we are trying to bomb cancer with radiation or drugs or anything else can adapt. Uh, the immune system is built to do exactly that. And so we're now working out the finer steps of the dance. But yeah, cure is a word that they encouraged me to use. And so I stuck it on the cover. I see. So just, to, I guess, to, to clarify, and I think this point is super important, all this time when we think about finding a cure or treatment for cancer, we're thinking about putting something new into the body to kill the cancer. When immunotherapy is really doing something so that our own bo body's immune system can attack the cancer, the solution comes from within rather than without. That's right. And, and understanding that fundamental difference was really one of the big tasks of the book. I wanted to, immunotherapy is moving so fast now that you're trying to capture lightning in a bottle or, you know, photograph a moving train. It, it would, it's, it's beside the point. But marking this moment and establishing uh, a base for everyone to understand what's happening and not only what's here, but what's coming. Um, that was the, the, the main job of that. And what's different about immunotherapy from the cut, poison, and burn modalities towards cancer, which basically treats cancer as a monster that needs to be destroyed. And you use everything in your power right up to the point and sometimes past it of perhaps killing the patient in order to kill the cancer. This is different. The immune system is there. We didn't realize it, but it was handcuffed by cancer. There are secret handshakes that cancer has evolved to say, I'm cool. Don't attack me. I'm a, I'm a fetus cell or I'm something like this. I'm, I know I look weird, but trust me, you're not supposed to kill me. Now that we know that, we can block those secret handshakes and look for more. And so, yes, that's the fundamental difference. It's just unleashing what's already inside you and letting it do the job. Professor George Church is one of the pioneers and living legends of modern genetics. In episode 26, we dive into the state of modern genomics, next-generation oncology, and the security and regulation of genetic information. Right now, I feel like we are in the midst of a genomics revolution. We've had, we've seen these massive cost declines because of, uh, or, or in DNA sequencing, and now we have cheap, easy, less complex ways of uh, conducting genome editing uh, with the likes of CRISPR gene editing. So if you're looking forward, so now you have these two technologies, and let's say that you know, there's also has been a rise of machine learning and AI, and there's been a convergence of these technologies. So just thinking about it very high level, where are you seeing these technologies converging and where is healthcare heading? Whether it might be in the realm of synthetic biology, how we diagnose diseases or even treat diseases, where are we heading? Well, I think that despite their tremendous promise, uh, protein drugs, especially orphan drugs and gene therapies for rare diseases even though they're collectively quite common, they're individually rare, and they have to be approved one by one. What's attractive uh, alternative to that, and it's part of the revolution, no doubt about it, is, is this idea of preventative medicine, taking it as early as possible. I don't call detecting circulating tumor cells preventative medicine. By the time they're circulating, your cancer is already pretty far progressed. Preventative is, is when you do it before, while there's still zero cancer cells. And this can be done by reading your genome and understanding it and, and, and acting appropriately. By, it can be by uh, mate choice, you know, as early as possible. It doesn't have to involve pregnancy termination, although it can. But, but earlier is before get married, 
ideally before you even fall in love. These are times where it sounds funny, but it is extremely powerful medicine, but doesn't require FDA approval. There's, there's, it's a, a very strange combination where we have technology that already works. We have a database that already works. There's no downside in terms of false positives. If there's, if you're going to remove 5% of the people of, of uh, appropriate dating for you, if you remove another 5%, it doesn't matter. So it's a, it's a unique opportunity. There is a revolution going on in terms of synthetic biology, and it will have impact uh, on gene therapy, but I think it'll have bi probably bigger impact on uh, things like environmental components, uh, carbon sequestration, you know, safer agriculture, maybe more vegan agriculture, in engineering the environment so that very poor populations can escape some of the incredibly burdensome diseases that, that don't currently have affordable solutions. So even less expensive than vaccines, which has been a revolution in lowering some of the causes of poverty, there's still a few remaining diseases that are not solved by vaccines. And there are some synthetic biology solutions to those that may be even cheaper than vaccines. And so we, I think like gene drives and, and other things that impact the vectors out there. So I think there are quite a few things that can be done that are incredibly cost-effective and would not only help industrialized nations, but impoverished ones as well. So I, I was having a, a discussion recently with an epidemiologist, and he was telling me a little bit about his interpretation and, and his use of polygenic risk scores. So I, I wanted to kind of dovetail a little bit into something you mentioned insofar as preventative medicine is concerned. What sort of weight or interest do you put on the interface as we do more germline screening and, and, and sequencing and, and combine that with fairly and more sophisticated uh, machine learning models, H how can we imagine polygenic risk scores evolving? And is that something that could potentially be used as a preventative technique to kind of sort people along a risk distribution? Or is that something that you think is still a little bit too far away or, or too complex to kind of embed itself within routine clinical practice? No, I don't think it's too far away. Uh, in fact, I think w these days we tend to mostly underestimate the revolution. Uh, things arrive much faster than, than we expect, and we're ill-prepared for them. I think sometimes people will say, oh, this is far off. It's some kind of reassurance. Well, you don't need to, you don't need to learn about it now because it's far off. And I think that's not, not serving us well. The, the, for example, the affordable genome was supposed to take six decades, and it took more like six years. And I think the same thing is happening with some of the interpretation tools. Those are being accelerated in part because of machine learning and in part because of the precipitous drop in price and the realization that any day now there could be the tipping point where everybody finally clicks that, oh, yeah, just like I once upon a time I didn't want to have a carry around a computer, once upon a time I didn't want to get my genome sequenced. They're very analogous things. And so there's, there's all this software that's developing. The machine learning is a key component of it. Now, the thing about the complex uh, polygenic risk scores for complex diseases is that sometimes there are simple solutions to them. There are many complex diseases that involve stature, height, that are solved in the clinic with a single gene product, a single protein stomatotropin. Sometimes there'll be a single monoclonal antibody that'll solve a very complex disease. Cancer is certainly a complex disease, and we're getting simple immunotherapies. Almost all of pharmaceutical science has been 
simple solutions to complex problems. Knowing the complexity helps us find those simple solutions. But in addition, we now have the, the possibility of doing uh, complex solutions to complex problems. So for the first time, we're now editing uh, thousands of sites simultaneously. So it, just a few years ago, I mean, literally pre-CRISPR 2012, it was a big deal to edit two genes. And then a, a few years later, we edited 62 genes simultaneously to eliminate endogenous retroviruses from pigs for transplants. And then a few years after that, we're now doing 13,000. I think it doesn't take a lot of extrapolation to see how this can be made safer and aimed at all the polygenic risk score components or some subset that makes sense. So we should pay attention to both of the simple solutions to complex problems and the complex solutions to complex problems. So I'm glad you mentioned kind of the progression of uh, multiplexing and multi-editing in a single cell. So uh, I remember back when I was in the lab uh, just doing a single edit. And, it, and if it worked, that was fantastic. The PI was very happy. And now your lab was able to multiplex in a single cell edit over 13,000 sites in a single cell, which is a huge feat. For our listeners right now, would you be able to just unpack what that means for biology on the therapeutic side? And what really does this mean from a technological point of view? What are we unlocking? Well, first, I have to lower expectations. I mean, this was mainly a study to, to show that we could reduce the toxicity of that many edits at once. We still have to prove that we can deliver that number of guide RNAs or some other way of doing the editing. I'm quite confident we will. I was much less confident about the toxicity, and we've now solved that. But what it opens up is there's a number of cases where we do want to do multiple edits. So for some immunotherapies, we want to do a small number of edits. For the xenotransplantation, we want to do many dozens of edits in order to make the, the transplants more and more compatible and with the recipients hopefully universally compatible. But again, this is going to take a lot of edits. Maybe having additional advantages like being multi-pathogen resistant, multi-resistant you know, re to senescence and to cryopreservation and to cancer. Each of these will require m many edits. The advantage is for many of these, you can do it clonally. You can either do it through an animal that's donating the organ like a pig, or you can do it clonally through a pluripotent stem cell, where you can really characterize that clone very, very well in a way that's very hard to do in most gene therapies, where you've got a, a large population of cells, each of which is doing slightly different things. With a clonal characterization, you can take you can find relatively rare cells that have all the properties that you want, and then you can expand them and, and use them. So I think that's going to be an extremely important ramification of this ability to do multiplex editing. We may not need uh, 10,000, 13,000 for everything, but we, we certainly have some of the projects where they're already articulated, like the Genome Project Right, which now involves 105 labs around the world. That plausibly involves thousands, tens of thousands of mutations in order to achieve the goal of multivirus resistance. Everyone's heard of Moore's Law, but few has heard of Wright's Law. In Episode 7, ARC's Research Director, Brett Winton, explains how Wright's Law makes simple and robust predictions about cost declines and why it's at the center of ARC's research. I'm joined by ARC's Research Director, Brett Winton. 
Brett manages the whole research crew here at ARC, and he recently published a piece on ARC's website called Moore's Law Isn't Dead, It's Wrong. Long live Wright's Law. Brett, this is a provocative piece. Moore's Law is kind of the gospel of the semiconductor industry, and you're saying it's wrong. And there is another law called Wright's Law. It's spelled W-R-I-G-H-T. That's even better. Can you explain... Well, first of all, what is Wright's Law? How did you come across it? And why is it better than Moore's Law? Sure. So the idea behind Moore's Law, and I would call it Moore's Law style forecasts, is that the unit cost of a technology declines as a function of time, no matter what, every year or every couple of years, and you pick the unit of time over which it declines. So Gordon Moore famously proclaimed that, hey, we can kind of double the transistor density on a computer chip every two years. And he revised, actually, I think he started out and said every year and then revised it to every two years. And so he refined how frequently he thought you'd be able to do it over time. And the implication of that is that if you double the transistor density on a chip, then you should be able to get twice as much computation for the same cost, or you should be able to pay half as much money and get the same amount of computation every two years. And it's, I would say, the most famous technology cost decline law or, or rule in, in history. And as it turns out, it actually doesn't stand up to, to kind of basic logic, where you can imagine that if there was a, a huge recession and the computer industry basically was way over capacity. Demand fell off a cliff. At first, you would have uh, computer chips selling for extremely cheap because everybody would be wanting to utilize their factories. But then over the medium term, you actually wouldn't have costs decline as quickly because there wouldn't be investment going into new manufacturing techniques to enable you to put more transistors on the same amount of silicon. And so Wright's Law tries to take into account the actual production volume to forecast cost declines. And so Wright wrote his paper, I think his first name is Theodore, in actually three decades before Moore's Law, before Moore made his Moore's Law proclamation. And he was looking at the cost of manufacturing airplanes. And he realized that if you measured the cumulative production of airplanes over time, that there was a consistent cost decline in actually multiple factors of production for airplanes. So he looked at the labor cost of producing airplanes, the facilities costs, so the amortized capital required to produce airplanes, the amount of material required, uh, and they all followed a consistent percent cost decline for every cumulative doubling in production, meaning that the thousandth plane might have cost $10,000, and then the 2,000th plane costs actually 15% less than $10,000. And then the 4,000th plane costs 15% less than 15% less of $10,000. And so it turned out this was a robust mechanism by which to, to just guess what a future plane would cost to produce. And then further researchers at the Santa Fe Research Institute said, hey, that's actually, that makes a lot of conceptual sense. Let's test Wright's law versus Moore's law and other cost decline rules against all kinds of technologies. And so not just transistors, but photovoltaic chips and 
nuclear power plants. And they concluded that actually this rule of cumulative production doublings leading to a cost decline is more generalizable across technologies than a rule of for every amount of time, costs automatically come down a certain amount. So that's the general framework of rights law is that, hey, to understand where technology costs are going to go, you actually don't, the, the right question to ask is how many years away will computers cost this much? It's how much computational volume, how many transistors do we need to sell in order to get costs to that price point that we're looking for? And so the right question is really how much demand can we unleash at that new price point? And that's how you can forecast future prices. The size of a computer chip has stayed roughly the same for decades. Cerebrus, a Silicon Valley startup, has figured out a way to make computer chips 60 times larger. In episode 37, CEO and founder Andrew Feldman explains how his team made the breakthrough and how their chip could revolutionize artificial intelligence. Andrew, when you founded Cerebrus, did you already know you wanted to tackle the AI problem using a wafer-scale approach? Around 2012 to you know at the current times, or I'm tracking maybe 60 to 80, you know, reputable AI chip startups or more in totality. And every there single are. every single slide, you know, everyone's setup slides are are the same. You know, neural networks extremely they compute are. intensive, compute bandwidth uh, very bandwidth intensive. You need more flops. You need more gigabytes per second of transfer of data, yeah. and the, the setup is the same. And everyone. A lot of the proposed ASICs arrived at a similar kind of a architecture in spirit, similar to something like a Nirvana or a Volta. You know, you need tensor cores and and um, and you want these high speed interconnects between chips to allow the training for models that are large. GraphCore mm-hmm. went kind of one step further and say we'll just get rid of external memory because we want everything to be on chip, almost like like in the vein of what what you guys are doing. But no one kind of looked at the problem and said, well. Uh, we need to solve a semiconductor manufacturing problem. <laughs> Only Cerebrus really went that far. Did you know that was the approach you were going to take from the outset? Well, we knew a couple of things. We knew, and I agree with most everything you said, a couple of points just to clarify. we There are a lot of startups, but very few were aimed at training. Hmm. Most of the 60 or 80 that, that you're describing chose consumer-facing silicon, chose inference, and a small chip for inference in the phone or at the heavy edge, maybe the car, but they were primarily inference chips. And I think as you look out over the past 15 or 20 years, consumer silicon has been a hard place to be. Mm-hmm. And it's been a very hard place to be in a phone because your phone maker is trying to design you out as fast as they can. It's been a very challenging market for startups. And we looked at that and said, that's not where we want to play. We love building things for the data center, and we love solving the hardest problems. And so to begin, we were aiming at training in the data center, and there were only a couple companies that did that. When you build parts for the data center, you have two choices. You can build chips, and you can put them on a printed circuit board and attach them via PCIe and place them sort of as power-sucking aliens in someone else's server. And... That's also a strategy that has failed again and again. It's hard to think of the last startup that was successful in building a chip, putting it on a, on a PCI board, plugging into other people's servers and building a, a big business with that. 
Maybe you go back to Fusion IO, who crashed and burned miserably. It's a very challenging strategy because you're in a Dell or an HPE slot. And you've only got a few hundred watts, and you've only got a certain amount of cooling, and you've only got a certain amount of power, and you only have a certain amount of of fabric bandwidth delivered to you by somebody else. We knew that that also wasn't for us, because we love building systems. And if you look at the companies that have gone public in the data center, whether it's Pure or Nutanix or this collection of others over the past 10 or 15 years, they build systems. And our view is if you're going to build a Ferrari engine, it's not very good if you, you put it in a Volkswagen and expect to get Ferrari performance because you don't. If you're going to build a, a Ferrari engine, you want to build the whole Ferrari. And that was our approach from the get-go. And there are only really two other companies that have chosen that. I mean, NVIDIA built a DGX where they saw the same thing. You want to build the whole machine, not just the chip, but you want to build the system. And Google. And they build not just the TPU, but they build the entire the entire cluster. So when we look out at the market, we see a small number of companies that decided to go after the data center and training. Of the startups, we were alone from day one knowing we were going to build a system. And when you build a system, you have a great deal of flexibility. It's harder. It requires more money. But your advantage is vastly larger if you do it. You can control the amount of power delivered to the chip and the way it's delivered. You can control the I.O., you can design a fabric. You have vast flexibility inside your machine. Those were things we knew we needed to create massive advantage. And we knew two things about this problem, that training is a feedback loop. And that training, to accelerate training, you have to move things through this loop, move inputs through the loop more quickly. And what's in the loop? There's only calculation and communication. That's it. And so if you wanted to accelerate training, you needed to accelerate calculations and communications. And that meant more cores, that meant more memory close to cores, and that meant vastly faster communication, which we felt was best solved with a very large chip. Could you talk a bit about the system architecture? That was a long answer to a simple (laughs) question, huh? Of course, of course, that makes sense. I guess really quickly, when you were already creating the founding team, did you already have in mind that you wanted to do a wafer scale chip? Or did that emerge later? We had in mind we wanted to do a very large ship. We, uh, the founding team is built of my co-founder, Gary Lauterbach, who was my co-founder at our last company, who's one of the world's premier computer architects. JP Fricker, who is one of the world's leaders in system and package design. Uh, Sean Lee, who's an extraordinary hardware architect. Michael James, who's a pioneer in algorithms and software architecture. And we'd all worked together at, at C-Micro, our last company, which we sold to AMD in 2012 for a little over $357 million. We knew what we were good at. We knew what we weren't good at. We knew what we wanted to do. We wanted to, do a, to solve a, a big, hard problem and move an industry. We didn't want to be a little bit better. We didn't want to be twice as good as a GPU. We wanted to be 100 or 1,000 times faster. And to do that, we set out to be extraordinarily ambitious. And that was in the system design. That was in the chip design and architecture. That was at, at every stage of our thinking. 
ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. ARK believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARK believes to be reliable. However, ARK does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARK. Historical results are not indications of future results.